Welcome. You are listening to the Fat and Furious podcast. In this podcast series, your host, Steve Bennett, father of seven, best-selling author and adventurer, will be joined by 23 of the world's most forward-thinking medical professionals, doctors, authors, and top nutritionists, where he'll share the truth behind living healthier and happier for longer. On today's podcast, I'm joined by psychotherapist Anna Pinkerton. Anna Pinkerton, with over 25 years experience, is one of the UK's leading experts in how to prevent burnout, uh, looking at traumas and helping uh, companies and individuals alike look at these specific issues. She's also a brilliant author And I'm sure throughout the program, there's going to be lots of things that we're going to learn together. So I'm joined by Anna Pinkerton. Uh, Anna, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's good to be having a chat again. Yeah. Really enjoyed our chats before as well. Well, thank you very much. We chatted together during the Food Bank Show, trying to raise money uh, during COVID. And I really, really enjoyed our conversation. Um, But for those that don't know you or didn't watch the Food Bank Show, tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Oh, okay. Well, um, I'm a psychotherapist and um, I tend mostly to work now with um, leaders of companies and organizations uh, or people in very high up roles who have, that lead other people. Um, one of my roles is to help people not burn out and break down. Another one of my roles is to help them um, with what I call inner brutality. So if they're very um, self-critical, uh, uh, they harangue and demean themselves within in an internal narrative. It tends to affect their not just them, but the people that report to them. It tends to ripple out and um, affect teams for the worst. So, yeah, so that's a big tranche of the work that I do at the moment. And um, my specialism is trauma. So currently, uh, 90% of what I'm doing is working with companies around trauma and how to understand what's happening at the moment and what to expect also. And a psychotherapist is somebody who looks at emotions and sort of processes in the brain, um, uh, works with people that have got uh, post-traumatic uh, stress disorders and, and so on. Is that a, a, a fair description of, of, of a role of a psychotherapist? Yeah, I mean, I've always seen it that psychologists te- are, are qualified to assess I mean, I I can gather that somebody's got PTSD because I've done it for years. Um, But um, generally, a psychotherapist um, helps somebody enter um, the catharsis and process of recovery and healing. So that's kind of where I'm more at. And it's really helping people understand what it is to be human, that their responses to... um, uh, what was difficult events or chronic adversity is proportionate. So, yeah. So really, I see it as um, you're a you're a guide in in recovery. Brilliant. And uh, t- for those that don't know, you wrote a brilliant book called Smile Again. Tell us a little bit behind what sort of led you to write the book, and, and you know what was. I mean, it's a brilliant book uh, that we're going to put a footnote on uh, later. But uh, tell everybody a little bit about Smile Again and, and who it's aimed at. Well, um, Smile Again came, came to me as an idea. I, t- I just got to a point in my working life. Uh, I think career is probably a bit too fancy for my working life. So, but in, within my working life, I kind of, um, I got to a point of realizing that, um, there was a lot of information that I'd gathered. And because I'd worked with people that had already burnt out or broken down and literally thousands of hours of working with people at the darkest, um, most difficult time of their lives and helping them through that, I realized that um, there were common themes in the recovery journey. And so I thought, well, um, why don't I just really try to nail what those are and um, create a resource, basically, or a guide to help walk somebody through the different elements of recovery. So Smile Again really came from that. Um, and also, I had a personal experience where I really broke down and was in a very, very 
I won't say dark place, I was in a very traumatized place. And so there was a really um, interesting amalgamation of 20 years of, of um, being a clinician and then um, a couple of years of being in a very overwhelmed um, place where I was in neurological disarray myself and I was very, I was traumatized. I wasn't depressed particularly, but I was in, a, in, a, in disarray. And so it was kind of the marriage of those two things. I thought, well, I, now I've really been in it and I can draw on my professional career and my personal experience and, and put those elements together because I went through the, the journey of recovery. So I kind of knew it in a different way. So that's where the book came from. And um, I just felt the urge to download all this information from at the point that that probably uh, 20,000 hours of uh, psychotherapy practice at the time so that I could make way for new ideas within myself and um, and that's where the new kindness incorporated methodology then sprung from actually. That's brilliant and if you've done 20,000 hours I read about a book once called Bounce that said when you get you yeah. need 10,000 hours to be an expert in the subject yeah. so if you've done 20,000 hours that makes you a real real expert in the subject. I've done 30 uh, now. Uh, well, then, that, makes you, that makes you a triple expert <laughs> right now, which is fantastic. Uh, so yeah. I'm talking to the right person. Talk to me about, we're going to talk about a seven-step process in a bit. Talk, I want to talk quickly, if we can, a bit off topic. But um, in Primal Reset, uh, we're trying to help people uh, lose weight. We're trying to help them you know, regain uh, control of, uh, of, of what they eat. And what most people get wrong with diets is they think it's all about food, 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 you must eat this, you mustn't eat that. But the reality is it's got nothing to do with that. It's, it's about, it's all psychology. You know, we've got a brain that's hardwired to eat food and, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's their survival instincts from when we were hunter-gatherers. Um, and then, of course, people start to put weight on, but then they start to beat themselves up about, you know, excessive weight. I bet there's a lot of trauma associated with, you know, big weight gains. And just wonder if you've got any advice for anybody that's maybe trying to lose weight and at this point are still blaming themselves because of course don't forget all those big corporates they always say you know what well, eat little you know, eat in moderation it's not our fault that we make all this chocolate and this fizzy pop it's your fault for not being able to, to to eat in moderation and there's been this massive blame culture on people that have been overweight but i kind of think it's not really anybody's fault it's just oh i totally agree nature. and it doesn't it doesn't really help it never helps to blame and shame people I say, to, I say to people, look, what we do is we look for reasons, not blame. Because there might be reasons. Um, quite a lot of people that I've worked with with issues around food, uh, it's usually an early childhood experience. Um, and it doesn't mean a one-off shocking trauma or anything. It could be that the, uh, the familial culture um, just happens to have issues around food. Every family has an issue around something. Um, and so it kind of gets wired in way, way you know, a, before the age of five, most likely. And so then you find people at 30, 40, 50 who are operating on um, something that was wired in so uh, so young that they, they then turned it against themselves because they can't lose the weight. And then they demean themselves and harangue themselves and talk meanly to themselves. Um, if I'm working with somebody around an issue about food, I get to the point where I say to them, I don't, I don't want to talk about the food. It's nothing to do with the food. If it wasn't food, it'd be something else. You have to learn to meet and treat yourself kindly. You have to meet and treat yourself as though you were somebody else uh, in a companionable way so that you are going to meet, um, you're going to walk yourself through this issue. Um, there's, if you start demeaning or haranguing yourself, swearing at yourself, some people are literally self-harm uh, because they they feel out of control. Uh, it never helps. They never get they never get better. They never get over their issue with food because um, because the issue isn't the food, right? So what I say to people is, look, if you've, been ha if you've had an issue with food for 20 years and haranguing and demeaning yourself because of it hasn't worked, it's not going to work now. So I ask them to have a bit of faith in me and I train them in companionability self, which is how to rewire the brain to give up the brutality and put companionability in its place. It takes a while. It takes a big commitment to do that. But that's when the issue, no matter actually what the issue is, whether it's food or alcohol or drugs or exercise, anything that's 
too much that's obsessive works against us. So, but if you deal with the inner brutality, that person meets and greets themselves kindly and in a companionable manner. There just isn't an issue there because they'll learn to take choice around food and not be um, operated by this ancient wiring. That makes sense. No, that makes complete, complete sense. I mean, I was obese, hence my book was called Fat and Furious, and the podcasts are called Fat and oh. Furious. I was obese for 25 years. And, and when I started to look at the psychology of it, you know, one of the things, I was lucky, but beautiful parents who have just both been married for 60 years, but um, beautiful parents, oh. and but you eat everything on your plate, Steve, because if you don't, there's people starving around the world. It was around the time when Ethiopia was all... People, yeah. you eat everything on your plate, and then you can have your ice cream. So two bits there, actually, of psychology of, you know, when I was in my 30s and 40s and overweight, I would never leave anything on the plate because that's hardwired. Yeah. I would yeah. then see ice cream as a, war, a reward. So whenever I'd done something good at work or needed a reward, it went for ice cream. And, and, and there's just so much psychology isn't there, in, the, in the eating that you mustn't beat yourself up. You've got to try and understand what those triggers are, yeah. those cues, those uh, and those habits, and, and realize what they are, and and realize also that while giving up smoking, you know, giving up smoking is difficult, right? <laughs> because I was an ex-smoker, uh, I am an ex-smoker. Uh, giving up smoking was difficult, but actually, it's easier to give up smoking in one sense because you don't need smoke. The fact is, we're hardwired, yeah, we're hardwired to eat. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I hear this a lot. You've got you've got to build a relationship with self first. And then build the relationship with food, if you like. I think is my feeling. That seems to be what works. Um, but if if you've got a treat system with food, you've probably got a treat system psychologically wired in. Um, and it's very it's okay for me to say because I'm not wired that way. So I don't I never see food as a treat. Um, if I want it, I'll have it. But it's a decision. And the problem with an old wiring system is that it, like you were saying. It, it, it gets wired in that, um, oh, you've been good today, whatever that means, uh, so you can have the ice cream. Or you've finished a portion of food that was enough, but then you get the ice cream. So, excuse me, the mentality of treating, it can also be that we um, have already fallen out with ourselves. So then we give ourselves a little something to butter ourselves up in a way. So the companionability work within self and the... Um, destruction of inner brutality means that you don't need external things to validate oneself because you are already of full value does that make sense so yeah it doesn't matter what that treat is it it you just the psychology of that becomes um obsolete because you're you build such um companionability inside that you don't need anything. So in a way, you're not externally referenced. You become internally referenced. You're okay, and you have value. Boom, whatever you're doing. <laughs> I say to clients all the time, you have to have as much value sitting on the sofa staring forward as um, as opposed to um, running a, a, an amazing multi-million pound charity. Because if you don't have value just for who you are, full stop, you're in prop, you're going to have problems because you're going to look for your value elsewhere, whether that's in food or drugs or alcohol or overworking, over-exercising, you see, because there's no moderation in the treat system. That's very, very interesting. There is no moderation in the treat system. I like that. Does that also play into... Uh, this whole thing about gratitude and, and not always comparing. I try and keep teaching my children that, you know, comparison is the theft of happiness. You, you, you know, you have to look at, you know, things that you can be grateful for all the time. Does that kind of play into that as well? We talked about this before, didn't we? Well, the thing about gratitude is, I, it's, it's for me, it's about a process. It's not a decision. Um, because you've got to learn how, what you're grateful for. So, um, you could say to somebody, be grateful, and they might go, oh, I am, um, but they won't mean it. They've got to be able to feel it inside. Um, you can, you can um, build gratitude over time because you're learning your relationship with the thing. 
or with the subject or the environment. But um, if somebody says, well, I, I'm going to switch a switch to gratitude, it's not really, it's not very real. So I think it's great to support your children or anybody, and including yourself, to build a relationship with something. Like we've just been in three months of lockdown and, and there's things that my me and my family might be grateful for and there'll be things we're probably not so grateful for. But it's about being in the process with it. That's, again, fantastic, fantastic advice. Um, in a nutshell, and I know uh, most people in your industry don't like to say, oh, it's, you shouldn't, shouldn't oversimplify it. But if you were to simplify things, uh, mm. uh, there's a Chinese proverb by Lao Tzu, and I think we might have talked about this before, but uh, you know, if you are depressed, you're living in the past. If you're anxious, you're living in the future. If you are at peace, you are living in the present. Very, very easy for somebody like me to say, but mm -hmm. if somebody is depressed or anxious or uh, has you know, post-traumatic stress, uh, uh, post stress disorder, um, is that what we're trying to do? Are we trying to live more in the now than being spending lots of the brain time thinking about the past or the present, or is this just a complete barking up a wrong tree? Well, you know what? It's a great sound bite, isn't it? And I don't, you know, there might be some truth in it, but what I'd be really conscious of is that somebody that has anxiety or depression may feel certainly that's an oversimplification, but um, nobody is doing that on purpose. So again, we're going back to that blame culture and blame means shame. So it's not helpful. There are many, many reasons why somebody would be in depression. And nobody, like, I've never met anybody that really is on purpose trying to linger in a depressive state. So I would just take that out of it um, and listen to what's happened to them and what they're experiencing in the present. Um, and the same with anxiety. Nobody's going, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll, I'll pitch some, some anxiety and, and, and live in that state for, you know, two years. So, Again, it comes into how one meets oneself, how one is, um, I think the internal narratives is really important. If you're blaming yourself for being depressed or blaming yourself for anxiety, it never helps. I'm telling you that for nothing. It never, ever helps. And I say to people that have had trauma, if you consistently berate yourself, demean yourself and brutalize yourself, you will not get better. You might learn to live with the trauma to some extent. But in terms of recovery, it will it will hinder it, if not prevent it completely. Is that the same for people that are serious about weight loss, that, that to really start on that journey to, to regain weight? And certainly we learned a lot in COVID that, that you know, being overweight has you know, more side effects than we, we probably even realized three or four months ago. Uh, and we should all be trying to get our weight down. I and mean, we've got two thirds of the population that are overweight and we know that the knock on effects being overweight. But does that ring true with that if somebody's seriously overweight it's so is it is, is it this is a question is it so important that they don't beat themselves up and start to look at you know what what has caused it i believe so and it's my it's my belief based on my experience um the reason being if you consistently harangue swear berate yourself demean yourself diminish yourself inside right so your relationship with yourself is one of brutality. That person psychologically doesn't want to look after themselves. So, and it's impossible for them to. And this is not a blame thing. This is a reason. So when that person who perhaps wants to on one level um, get to a point of eating more healthily, if they're hurting themselves within based on being overweight, it's it, it, the chemistry of that is wrong, right? The ingredients of that is wrong, excuse the pun. But you're, if, you, if you're five stone overweight and you hate yourself, you're not going to go, oh, I know, then I'll eat healthily because I care about myself. You already don't care about yourself, which is why I say to people, no matter what the issue is that's causing them suffering, um, the companionability to self is absolutely crucial. So is... And at the same time, rather, you've got to turn down the dial on that brutality. Otherwise, you are just like running into a wall all of the time. 
So that's the work to do. That's what the new book is about that I'm writing now. It's really the methodology of how you turn the dial down on brutality. Again, it's not a switch. Build a relationship with self, which is companionable. So you, um, you heal up the bit of brutality on one hand and you deepen the neural pathways that are based on companionability. And that's the relationship until there's that tipping point and the brain goes, oh, I get it. I don't need to do that. And I don't do that anymore. That's really, so really, then you've got choice, yeah. true choice. Yeah, it's really good advice. In fact, your first book, Smile Again, you said that, um, again, a lot of people eat because they're stressed. They think it takes away the stress. And you're, so maybe this is all part of the same conversation. In your book, you said, you know, what, one thing that stress hates is kindness to self. So yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe that changing that yeah. narrative in your brain from beating yourself up and harming yourself and having a go when you eat that, that, you know, that McDonald's that you shouldn't have ate because you're on that diet. Rather than beating yourself up, just say, hey, okay, I made a mistake. But that inner kindness helps you de-stress, but itself may, may help you on, on the journey. Is that correct? Or? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and even, to, even to a slightly deeper level, it's just like noticing, okay, it's all right to have had the McDonald's. Did I enjoy it? Did I want it? And I'm really looking at it, was it a choice point? Or, or <clears throat> excuse me, lots of people that have... Um, an issue with food, um, sometimes they've eaten it really in a way before they've um, realized. So it's about becoming conscious of, was it enjoyable? And if it was, great, fine. Just that's all it was. It was a McDonald's. It doesn't um, identify you. That is not who you are. So then, like anybody else, you get to move on from that. So it, even in a sense, um, it's not a mistake. It's just it's just what a process that you're rolling with, like your relationship with self, like your relationship with other people and the world, right? Um, what happens when um, they're suffering by whether it's um, a substance or, or something else is that it becomes very clunky and very absolute and very polarized. Like, now I'm bad because I've had McDonald's. Whereas if I had McDonald's, I probably wouldn't enjoy it. But... I have no no feeling of um, I'm a bad person for it, right? So there's no need to um, attach that much meaning to it. But that's very easy for me to say, and that's obviously it's a relearning, it's a retraining of oneself. Yeah, one of the things I'm working on at the moment with a, a couple of brilliant guys around habits um, is that you know. I've always been a goal setter, uh, or I always used to be a goal setter, and that goal, and the reality with goals is you're never happy till you get there. When you get there, you've achieved, and certainly weight loss, you go, oh, I can have a few McDonald's now, or whatever, you know, I don't know why I keep saying McDonald's, but I can have a few subways now, I hit my goals, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden you're back looping the weight back on, but because it's so slowly, you don't realize, and before you know it, your old habits have come back. And also, sometimes if you can set goals, you might set them too low. Uh, and what a couple of guys have been working with me on is saying, look, actually, let's forget, stop people. You know, maybe if they're absolutely goal orientated, that 1% of people, that's fine. But most people don't set goals because if you set goals and you fall off the wagon a little bit, then, then there's every chance you will start beating yourself up and being unhappy. Because whereas if you see it as a process, if you see it, I'm moving in that direction and it is a process, but the goal isn't got to be on this date or I've got to be that weight on the scales. Maybe that helps to be a little bit kinder to yourself when, when you, we all have those off days. Well, absolutely. I mean, goal setting can be a form of inner brutality in actual fact. Because um, what, what, what a lot of people do is they say, well, I, I want to get here, wherever that is, or whatever weight that is, or whatever the goal is. Um, and I don't have value until I'm there. So and as soon as you've got that packed with yourself, you're, you're like liable to nosedive. Because if you, if you only have value or worth or happiness based on that goal, um, you're not going to enjoy necessarily the process of getting there. So again, it comes down to relationship with self in every moment um, within your, your hours, your days, your weeks, your months. So if you can be motivated to achieve something, but it's being um, in relationship with the journey as much as what you think the achievement is. Because um, when you get to being goal-orientated only, the brain kind of goes, right, 
okay so when you when you slip up or you go backwards a couple of steps um i'm going to fall out with you yeah? yeah so if we fall out with self or we feel like we've let ourselves down sometimes we feel like we've gone to, all the way down to the bottom again and so issues around food are are very very um um on that pattern like you said, had the McDonald's, got, I'm bad, I've failed, boom, I might as well eat shit for the rest of the day. And it doesn't have to be as extreme as that. It could just be, I ate the McDonald's, I kind of wish I didn't. Yeah. But that's okay, because I've got another hour now, and I'll do differently now. You see, it's quite, the, the brutality makes the pendulum swing from good to bad, and treat to not treat, and punishment to treat, and gets very messy and causes suffering. Why is it that we see um, a lot of children self-harming then? Is there something wrong in society? Is it a problem with nutrition? Or has it always been that way and we've never had a name for it before? But, you know, it, it, certainly pre-COVID, it was on the news all the time. My, uh, there's always cases. And then my children talk about some friends of theirs that I'm absolutely shocked about that they're, that they're doing it. Um, is, 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 has something changed in society? Or are we just more aware of it now? Well, I do think so, and I don't want to over-egg it, but I do think that I think people inadvertently, because they're sucked into this culture, I think people are living their life as though they're on the front page of the sun. And um, and I just think that is not healthy. Um, it means that the privacy that we need in order to develop ourselves in um, through teens and up to the age of around 25 um, it's all on the front page. Um, so I'm not saying social media is to blame. Again, it's a reason. Um, but I just can't imagine what it must be like for people who are going through uh, rapid periods of development uh, in a world where it's fed to us how you know devastating things are um, in the news, like COVID. Um, and, you know, I think there's an atmosphere of there's nothing to look forward to. I think that really affects our young people. Um, I say to my kids, look, there's always a way. It it might be difficult in this world, but we have to navigate it, however difficult it is. And, and you know, and we're quite privileged, really. Um, and we don't, you know, we're not living in poverty. Um, but there's always a way. And I think that that kind of the narrative, the kind of pervasive narrative that these poor youngsters have nothing to look forward to there's no jobs yeah i i can't i can't imagine yeah could it so. be something also to do with the fact that you know when you see your friends on whatever the social media is these days i know it's not facebook anymore but uh, instagram or um, whatever they are um that that constant comparison to that one moment snapshot of your friends which are nearly always going to put that one moment of happiness up that smile that what in other words they're, they're just putting a snapshot of their happiness side up and then do, yeah. if you're doing too, too much social, do you just start going, well, everybody else is happy apart from me. And therefore, does that start to uh, cause problems for, for the teenagers? Well, for everybody, I guess. Well, some years ago, a long time ago, when I was working in the, in the NHS, there, what they did start thinking about, there was this thing called Facebook depression. And they did notice that teens, that the longer they spent on Facebook, the more uh, the higher level of depression that they had. And I'm sure that's part of it. You know, it's compare and despair, isn't it? Um, but you're locked. In fact, I've sent a, a private message to somebody saying, oh, you know, that it looks like you're having a great time. And they actually said to me, um, yeah, that's the facade. That's how it looks. Actually, we've had a really difficult time. I was like, oh, blimey, I would not have known that. Um, and actually, it was just, I was just saying, oh, congratulations. You know, you've made a great move in life and it looks like it's great. Uh, no, that's not the reality. So, yeah, you're right. Um, but again, it's being externally referenced, isn't it? We're teaching in with social media that to be externally referenced, i.e. look for your value and your um, uh, endorsements outside of yourself. And I believe we have a responsibility as human beings to look within ourselves, create our own relationship with self and value. And then we affect the world for the better. And we don't expect other people to do that for us. So yeah. it's a bit of a toxic mix, really. Well, Whitney Houston sang about it, didn't she? She said the great, what is it? The, world, the greatest love is to love yourself or come on the exact, the exact uh, same words. 
Um, so somebody that's trying to lose weight, give up smoking, give up drinking, somebody who's depressed or anxious, how do we start to find that self-love, kindle that, that kindness to ourselves? Um, we're overweight, I think we don't like the fact we're overweight, yes, we're smoking, we don't like the fact we smoke. Uh, maybe we're not doing as much with our kids as we should be. How do we turn the kindness internally? And, and, and what's the first step? Well, first of all, it's noticing the level of brutality that you have. So um, the first tranche of the work that I do with individuals is to, um, we, we look at what the constellation of the narrative is. So, because um, often people aren't aware of it. You'll hear it in people, they'll go, I'm an idiot, I'm a fat cow, I'm this, I'm that. And actually that has a, a massive effect. And that is the inner brutality at large. Um, so we try to figure out that. And then we ask the brain to accept, is, could there be an alternative, right? So you can't just say to the brain, oh, uh, be kinder to yourself, be more companionable, because it will go, no, I like what I know, because it's already wired in. So I know how to demean and diminish myself. So I'm going to do that for the next, what, for the rest of my life or the next few decades. Thank you very much. So we have to see how the brutality has the control and how it plays out. So that's the first thing. And then, um, and then you have to make a decision to, to build a new relationship, to build a new alternative. And that is to say, from this day forward, I will not ever demean myself or diminish myself, harangue myself, swear at myself. I will talk kindly and encouragingly and in a supportive manner. So it's kind of, you've got to see how it's got its grasp on you and perhaps even how it serves you. Because a lot of people um, have a high level of inner brutality because they think that's what motivates them, right? Just like you said in the goals. Um, I, I'm i more valuable if I achieve this goal. Actually, you're not. But it might be something you want to do. And and, you, and you know, I think um, inner brutality loves all or nothing. So it wants you to, it wants you to um, give stuff up instead of build a relationship with it. Right. And we hear that you said, you, you know, you actually said, um, if I want to give up this and I want to give up that, I want to give up. Yeah. OK, you can. But sometimes that extreme makes the brain go, no way. <laughs> it makes it uh, become even more entrenched because it doesn't know what the alternative is. So if you start like I um, talk about um, mastering moderation, because when you look at moderation, you're looking at building a relationship with something. Right. So, for instance, um, I'll have a slice of pavlova, not the whole thing. So if you take the pavlova away completely, um, I don't know why I mentioned pavlova. If you take the pavlova away completely, you've not built a relationship with it. You see, so and, and you can take down almost everything to, to that. So building relationship with self is also mastering moderation. Otherwise, all you're doing is saying, yeah, I'm all or I'm nothing. And the brain loves that. But it's very, very hard. Very, very hard to do. It loves its entrenched piece. But sometimes, if say somebody goes, right, I'm giving this up, and the brain hasn't rewired, boom, it'll take you back there. It'll take you back to the whole Pavlova because it didn't build a relationship with the slice. Right? That makes sense. Oh, total sense. Absolutely. I'm, I'm just. I was just hoping you're going to. Carry <laughs> I do like on. The, just sometimes the metaphors that I come out with. Honestly, I've got clients that are going, "Oh, well, that was a good one." <laughs> no, that's what makes these shows <laughs> so interesting. I was, I was like, "I like stay with this. This is great. Stay with this." Uh, mastering moderation. I love it. I think it's fantastic. I mean, there are of course times when you can't do that. I think things that are really addictive, like nicotine. You know, I, when, when I gave up, the yeah. thing that stopped me in the end was because. I'd give up for a bit, then I'd have one, and then you'd be smoking again, then you'd give up, and then eventually you'd have another one. Uh, things like that that are highly addictive, I think you sometimes have to say, look, I know there's no such thing as one cigarette. But then on But other... actually, you know what? You've, you're onto something there, because what you did describe was building a relationship with it. You went back to it, you thought, oh, I'm not keen on it, oh, now I've had five, it wasn't just one. And what you did is you experimented, and it didn't work. And that's what I'm saying. So sometimes, it, obviously, if it's um, something that's going to massively harm your health, then we it, it, we don't want it. But you, what you did is you went and tested that out. That doesn't work. That doesn't work with that substance. But 
in in other things um you can have moderation yeah. okay no you, you're absolutely right in fact your very good friend in fact the friend that introduced us together Dom, uh, Dan Mags has a website called Carb Dodging. So he knows everything about carb dodging. And I was skiing with him uh, in February and we went up to uh, a restaurant in, in, and it was James Blunt's uh, restaurant in Verbier. And they've got lots of different dishes on the menu. But we looked across and we saw somebody eating a pizza loaded with lovely cheese and meat on it. And we both looked at each other and both out laughing. And we went, we're going to have that, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, so, you know. We, you know, I normally, the next day after bread, really regret it, not just mentally, but my body just falls apart now. I think, I think actually by abstaining so much from bread, I think I've become gluten intolerant just by the fact I don't have it anymore. Yeah. Um, and I was right. really right. rough the next day. But, you know, but that is different, isn't it? You're absolutely right. That is mastering moderation as opposed to you know, having to go completely cold, cold turkey. But even if you go cold turkey, yeah. it's after that internal brain debate is what I think you're saying. Well, yeah, absolutely. And the moderation is that there will be extremes within that as well. There'll be, you know, I'm a gluten-free person, so there'll be times where that pizza is burning a hole. I, seriously, I want it so badly. I, don't, I can make my own, obviously. But um, but that that's what moderation is, is that it will also have the extremes. It will have the pizza, it will have the no pizza and, and everything in between. So, um, and that's the point. And that's truly what's happening there is your uh, you're building relationship with yourself because when we say all or nothing what we're really doing internally is saying I am good I am bad I am of value I am not of value or I'm of value I'm worthless and that's not good it doesn't work and it certainly doesn't work in rewiring the brain to a new way of being because that takes time that takes about that takes um, relationship with self. It takes commitment and recommitment. So the all or nothing never helps, really. The brain loves it though. The brain loves what it knows, and so that's why um, new um, healthy habits are tricky yeah. to to kind of um, wire in. We, uh, we we believe a lot in the the the, the book, the Chimp Paradox, and we we uh -huh. process it a little bit different. We don't call uh, it, the, the chimp, we call it the gremlin, because gremlin, in, in food terms, when you get hungry and you get this hormone that tells you to eat, it's called grelin. So we call him the gremlin grelin. And, uh, uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but, but it is understanding that debate. So we've got grelin, which is the limbic bit of the brain in the middle that's so all about emotion and fight and flight and survival and sex hormones. So we can't say he's completely a naughty little thing, because without him, we wouldn't be here. But then you've got the sort of frontal cortex, which is very much the human brain, the sort of intelligent brain. And there's always this, there's always this conflict going on between the two. And it's starting to understand, when you start to understand that, you can be kinder to yourself because you kind of go, oh, crikey, my, 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 my gremlin is, is taking over here. I need to, I need to try and put him <laughs> back in his box. And, and you have to understand that it's like, your gremlin's like a dog, you know, you, you, you can't take full responsibility for it because it's just human nature, but you've got to be able to manage it somehow. And I guess if you are going all or nothing, that's when that, those conflicts happen. Whereas if you go, look, it's, what was your word again? Ma uh, uh, mastering mod moderation. I guess what's happening then is you're allowing occasionally that part of the brain to take over, but just try and make sure that the sort of the frontal cortex, the human brain, you know, manages that process, I guess. Or is that going Well, you don't deep? have any control over your primitive part of your brain. Um, and that's but what we have to do is try to um get to it as quickly as possible right so um when we're younger our primitive brain is causing a havoc often um, and it might take us um weeks and months to work something out you know why we behaved in a certain way and as we're adults and what i say to people is all you can ask yourself is get to that more quickly notice what's happened and and, and make the adjustment that you need to um to be the, the best human being you can be. Um, but you, you know, you have very little control over that, but you do have control over the bit that goes, right, what happened there? Why did I react that way? So you just try to get to that ASAP. And um, over time, it just gets easier and more quick and quicker. But, you know, we don't, we can't control the primitive part. That's what, that's the point of it, really. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Smart Again, great book. Tell us a little bit more about Thank your you. new book and why you should go and buy it and, and what we're going to learn and discover about ourselves 
uh, in your new book. A new one? Yeah, or when's it, when's it, do we have a due date yet? Um, or? Um, not exactly, it'd be next spring. Um, it really is about this inner brutality stuff and how to, because really this is like, the, the inner brutality is a massive, massive pandemic. Um, it, it wrecks people's um, living experience and it really affects because it has a contaminating effect to other people. Um, and you know we're talk we're talking a lot about brutality in the world at the moment, and um, so I do think it's going to be pivotal in changing how people treat self and therefore how they treat other people. Um, brutality is created within for whatever reason, so and that's why we brutalize other people. And if we've come if we create companionability to self, then we don't need to brutalize other people, demean them, or diminish them. So I do think, you know, it's the methodology that will help change the world for the better, even if that's not for everybody. Um, so, so yeah, it's really about a handbook to humanity. And um, that's the subtitle. And um, I'm just going to, I'm writing it from the heart. I'm writing it from my clinical work. Um, you know, people have worked with me for several years now um in the methodology so i've got lovely feedback and it's still changed people's lives it's changed their businesses uh, that's a really interesting um offshoot to it as well that people have, are coming back who are business owners or entrepreneurs and they're like wow this is affecting everything for the better in the business um including profit which is fantastic to hear um so yeah i'm i'm really enjoying um, going through it, like I did with Smile again. Like, how do, uh, how do you download? The, I'm, I'm, I'm better just sparking in conversation in some ways, but it, it's a real challenge for me to go right. How do I put this into words and make it uh, sticky and palatable <laughs> for people? Yeah, well, uh, so right, back to that thing about you know the entrepreneurs and the businesses and things like that. You know, happy, I, I always say that the most important thing for a company. Is, is having happy people because you've got happy people then anything else takes care of itself and for example all our companies we never hire based on you know achievements or anything like that or, or uh, results and exams it's all about yeah what's the attitude of this person and we, we always say whenever you hire somebody if they moved in the house next door would you want to go around for a coffee and that's like the first thing i ask everybody in my team when they're interviewing somebody if they're the sort of person that you'd go around and have a coffee with, then carry on with the interview. If they're not, try and find a way to move on to the next candidate as quick as, as possible. Yeah, uh, because it's a good point, and that's what Tony Shea says in his book, Delivering Happiness. And he um, he had Zappos, and then Amazon bought them out. And it's a great book, actually. And he he says he doesn't hire anybody into his company that he wouldn't sit and have a beer with. Yeah. Because those are the kind of people, and actually, there's it's a really. I was talking to somebody yesterday, actually. I was, well, I was working with a company yesterday, and I was saying to them, um, their interview process needs to be trying to ascertain level of inner brutality. Um, because if you've got somebody in their organization here, and they've got, let's say, um, five, six people reporting to them, but this person's got very high level of inner brutality. It can't help but escape out. And it doesn't ripple out gently. It does have an insidious effect, but there's also very big, brutal um, impact on other team members. And that you can see that going, cascading down. Yeah. Um, so it's really vital. Um, that will that'll be in the book as well. How do you actually uh, practically ascertain this and also help somebody? Well, I tell you what we do in my company is I say to all the managers and all the employees simply this, that if your manager makes you really, really, really unhappy, have a chat with your manager. And if they're still making you really unhappy, are they making everybody else unhappy? And I'm not talking about the goals are too ambitious or they're putting you on a load of work. You know, uh, you know, there are times you have to get your head down and really, really work hard. But if that person is making you unhappy, and you, but you like your job and love your job, do everything you can to get that manager Fired. And I say that to all my team to say that, look, you've got to keep your team happy. And you can go, I tell all my team, you can go around a manager if they're making you unhappy, and especially if it's felt amongst the whole team, because it means we've got it something wrong, or at least we can then sit down that manager and say, you know, why is it that all your team are really, really unhappy? Because happiness is one of the most important things in life. And smiles are infectious, and a smiling company, one of the reasons, love him or loathe him, but my good friend Richard Branson builds great companies, because he bases it all on happiness. 
And uh, and I think yeah. companies need to learn that and and realise you know smiling is infectious and and the, <laughs> the way customers buy into brands is because organisations are smiling and. Uh, when I go over to my main company, I sit right outside where the call centre is, so I can hear exactly all the conversations that are going on, uh, and that, you know, that's it's just so important that that. Well, it's right. contagious. It's, yeah. It's so, so br brutality is contagious, and so is companionability. So, um, somebody who um, affects people for the worse will have a high level of inner brutality, and they won't necessarily be able to see that they're affecting their team in that manner, because their expectation of themselves and their own um, inner internal kindness or companionability, whatever you want to call it, they have no expectation of that. So if they're having a, a very difficult time internally, they won't really, they, they might say, I care, but they can't. And that's why it's so important to do that companionability work. It, otherwise, it's just words. So yeah. you know when there's a boss that says, go off early, I know we touched on this before, if you go off early, but it is just words, they will do what they see and they will do what they feel, right? So somebody with high inner brutality will exude this agony and that's what people pick up on. So, and, and of course, the exact opposite is true, which why is it's fantastic. Yeah. You know, if that person is truly companionable, they are quiet inside and they find life um, easy. And that's what they uh, they pass on. So, yeah. And I don't know if we, and again, I don't want to steal thunder from your new book, but that all made it anyway. <laughs> um, but if the, if the answer to starting the process off to being kind to oneself isn't about, because uh, I said, I, I mentioned that maybe there's too much comparison going on with the internet. Everybody compares themselves to what everybody else has got. And I, I always tell my kids, comparison is, is the theft of happiness. But if it's not just about, Comparison being the theft of happiness, and of course, people, lots of people have had traumas. You know, lost jobs, lost homes, and with COVID, more and more, you know, uh, yeah. people are struggling. So, real traumas are happening, and that can, of course, and, and back to my main topic, which is helping people lose weight. You know, they've, they've put on, piled on the pounds over the years, normally slowly, 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 so that they've fallen out of love with themselves. But if comparison isn't, if, if stopping comparison isn't the answer. And, and I know it's going to be hard to just say one or two bits of advice because all traumas are different and, uh, and all depressions and anxiety are, are probably diff fueled by different reasons. But where, where can somebody start? Um, um, with, I think and, it and, might and, be part of it. I'm not, saying, uh, I'm not saying you're wrong with it. I think that it's part of it. Um, to compare is to despair. And really what I think probably the most pivotal thing for somebody to make a change is that they're ready for it, right? So we could say to somebody, oh, you need to do this, you need to do this. Well, that's just an opinion. Until that person is truly ready and they've perhaps had enough of how they feel physically and emotionally and psychologically, then they won't make a change. They will only do it when they're thoroughly ready. And I think everybody has their time for that. Um, so I think it, I, I notice a lot that people kind of need to get fed up with the status quo. So once that starts feeling uncomfortable in being in that status quo, their brain can start to say, well, there might be an alternative way of living then. And then you've got, right, then the brain's ready. Aha, right, now we could do something differently. So there are all these things that are elements, but I think you've got to then make the decision. Mm -hmm. Do I want to carry on regardless? Or do I want to carry on with due regard for myself, right? So, and, and those are very different ways of living. Carrying on regardless is like, I don't care. I'm not being conscious. I'm just, I don't matter enough to look after. The other way is to carry on with due regard to me and myself, which means that I want to choose well for me to keep myself well, to preserve and sustain myself. And that's where the real power comes in, because then it is the slice of pavlova, not the whole lot. <laughs> Back to the pavlova. What, what, is it, well, I think I'm going to answer my own question here. I'm going to say, is it dangerous mm. to see somebody that you care for and somebody you love or a best friend or a family or one of your own children doing, falling out of love with themselves? 
how do you start that conversation? Do you start, well, we had this conversation before about talking to people that you know have been heavily stressed saying, I can see that you're going through a tough time. Never say, um, you know, I, I understand because you, you can't understand what's going on in their brain, but I can see you not being yourself. I'm here to help. You know, you are, what's, what happens when you give those phrases like, look, you're a great person. We all think you're absolutely amazing, but I can see at the moment you're not happy with yourself. Oh, is that, or have we got to leave the work to professionals like you? No, I think, gosh, no. Look, I'm a drop in the ocean, if you think about it. Our, our um, friendship to other people is much, much more important than somebody like me who would help somebody an hour or two a week. Um, we talked about this before in the Food Bank Show, and I think it, the important thing is to say what you see and don't interpret what you see. So... If you see that the person doesn't seem like themselves and they seem out of kilter, you can say that. Um, because then um, it might be received better, if that makes sense. Because um, if you say, or you seem a bit depressed at the moment, they'll be like, oh, actually, I'm anxious. <laughs> it, you might just be slightly off. But to say you don't seem like yourself or you don't seem like how you were when I saw you a month ago, okay. And so it might still miss for them. They might not be keen on it, but you're, there's no interpretation then. And it's just safer. And just always just say, oh, look, I'm here. I'm here. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a, that's a really nice way of saying, look, um, it's a way of saying uh, that you're owning the offer rather than you need me, by the way. Does that, it's a different kind of connotation. No, that's brilliant, brilliant, brilliant advice, Anna. Well, sadly, we come to the end of today's show. It's been fabulous, fabulous uh, having you on. Um, keep up the great, great work with all the, the businesses that, that you're helping. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, and uh, if anybody's just joined us at the end of this for whatever reason, uh, Anna's got 30,000 hours of experience in this area. 10,000 makes you an expert. <laughs> so she's a super expert three times over. And uh, keep up the great work. Lots of love to your kids. And I will do. Let's catch up. Thank you. you towards too. the end of this COVID for thing or when your book comes out. Yeah, great. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to see you. It's been lovely. Thank you, Anna. If you enjoyed this podcast, then why not subscribe to the full series so you can hear from all the incredible health professionals we spoke to. Before you go, though, visit Amazon today and pick up your copy of Fats and Furious by Steve Bennett. And as a thank you for being a subscriber, we'll even give you a third off. Simply use the discount code FF podcast and you'll get the full story featuring all 23 medical professionals.